Welcome to Flatbush in Maine, a podcast from Brooklyn Historical Society. Where we make history the Brooklyn way. Each month, Flatbush in Maine digs into Brooklyn's quirky, surprising, diverse history, linking it to the most salient issues shaping our world today. And we give a glimpse into how we make and preserve history every day here at Brooklyn Historical Society, a 154-year-old museum, archives, and urban history center. We are your hosts, Julie Golia, Director of Public History at Brooklyn Historical Society, and Zahir Ali, Oral Historian at Brooklyn Historical Society. Meet us at the intersection of Brooklyn's past and present. Zahir, I always wonder how many people realize that for the majority of the Revolutionary War, Brooklyn and New York were enemy-occupied. Yes, and after the disastrous Battle of Brooklyn in August 1776, the occupying British army saw traitors all around them and began to round up Patriot prisoners. But New York and Brooklyn didn't have enough prison space for all of them. So, what did the British do? They brought in a fleet of ships to house American traders and docked the vessels off the coast of Brooklyn. In this episode, we'll consider the tragic story of Brooklyn's Revolutionary War prison ships, on which upwards of 11,000 people may have died during the war. I think one of the things that is really important to me about this story is recentering New York as a like the epicenter of suffering during mm-hmm. the Revolutionary mm-hmm. War. The excerpt that you read is the kind of detail that sticks with the reader long after having read it. This story of the prison ship and the prison ship martyrs, as they became known, still continues to resonate in really interesting ways, right? It's not a story that people let go of for various reasons. Oral histories tell us something about a past beyond the time that they're documenting by providing us a kind of new set of questions to ask, new ways to think about the past. I was in Rackers Island, and there was this woman there who people were saying had AIDS. I remember that then I seen AIDS for the first time. And I believe that she she had dementia. She had some stuff happening. Um, And she would spend, she was still in the same housing area that I was in, and she had, she'd spend all this time like standing in, uh, in front of the mirror, like staring at herself. It's funny because when we were talking about during we were talking about smallpox. Yeah. We were talking about how they didn't really know anything about germ theory. They didn't truly know the nature of the illness or how it could be controlled. And there's this assumption, I think, often that like as we have marched through history, right. we get a right. better understanding right. of how infectious disease works, which is like, you right. know, to some extent true, but to a lot of extent not true. Our story starts with a (laughs) beatdown. A big beatdown. A big beatdown. One of the first battles in the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Brooklyn or the Battle of Long Island, depending on, you know, how we refer to this part of New York, was a major defeat. I think a lot of people in uh, you know, who've learned about the Revolutionary War, learn about it in this really nostalgic, romantic way, these very skilled fighters on behalf of American independence. And the truth of the matter is, that, you know, a lot of the people fighting for the American independence were 
pretty like untrained ragtag yeah. cobbled together bunch of folk well it's so funny because i think i think people think about it as like a david goliath story like i you do but i know you see like the uniforms right. and george washington and right like, you know i, I never and of course even... it's a professionalizing experience yes, the yes. war is a professionalizing yes. experience for the continental army but right. i think yeah this like th- there's something romantic about the david goliath thing and if there was something that the battle of brooklyn wasn't it was romantic True. It was. It was. Like David a, lost this one. It was bloody. Yeah. It was tragic. Um, it was the facing of a kind of a. I don't like the word naive is a little judgy, but like a un an unskilled and untested you know amateur army yeah. against a, a huge professionalized force of British and Hessian soldiers, yeah. and the result was pretty much a disaster in all aspects of of the battle. The one good thing to come out of it, of course, is that Washington was able to escape, right? right? With about 10,000 troops. You know, had that not happened, likely the war would not have continued on. But, you know, there's this wonderful story now that we get to tell of them escaping across a foggy East River to Manhattan in the middle of the night at the end of Brooklyn and, the uh, you know, able to fight another day. But a lot is left behind, of course, when they leave. Right. For the people who are left behind, it's unclear what is what is about to happen it's so interesting to think about the american revolution in the context of our own nationalism today yes because we i think so many people i mean it's obviously it's different in different places but so many people first identity is as americans right and that's absolutely not the case in 1776 or even like you know 1824 or 1848 (laughs) in a lot of ways that crystallizes in the years after the civil war but the idea that you know new a new englander would think that he had anything in common with um somebody from new york or somebody from virginia right i mean these are things you know those are connections that we take for granted today that did not exist at the time there were huge like contexts in which people were more or less loyal to britain and in new york new york was a mercantile center it was a financial center it was deeply anglican it was a royal colony its ties to the british metropole were deep in ways that were totally different than a colony founded on dissent in, That's in right. New England. That's right. right. That's right. Um, so people here were pretty reticent about about the revolution. Likely, what would have happened after the about after the battle is that if you were like a real diehard patriot here, you got out. You got the heck out of here. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And the loyalists were thrilled, right? And tons of people, thousands of people signed a loyalty oath in Brooklyn and in New York soon after the, <laughs> the war today. We can shame <laughs> them. But, it, but yeah. to some extent, you can't blame them. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the rest of the people kind of sat back, right, and said, I got to see how this goes. And that's the context in which um, we sort of come to our story about the prison ships. If you're a longtime listener of Flatbush in Maine, you know that we have emphasized that Brooklyn was not always this thriving, overpopulated, dense urban, city, of, yeah. urban city of itself. Like there, it was isolated in many ways from what we now see. It what what even then was this mercantile capital of Manhattan? That's right. right? Four thousand people living in Brooklyn around the time of the Total. Revolutionary War. I'm sorry, not I mean, in Brooklyn, all, I mean, in all, Kings County. In Kings County. In all of Kings wow. County. So, I mean, it is enormously sparsely yeah. populated yeah. as compared to a much more dense city 
uh, across the river. So these people are kind of like going about their business or trying to go about their business. Absolutely. And then they've just witnessed this fracturing battle. They witnessed death probably on a scale that they had never seen before. And the area is teeming with with war prisoners that the British are then gathering up. Uh, One thing that's important to know about the sparseness of the population is that there also weren't that many buildings. There were no place to put these people. Right. Right. In New York, you know, they had these big sugar refineries along the water. And for a while, the British were converting those to jails, but even those were run down, terrible conditions. But in Brooklyn, there was nothing, no place to put the thousands of supposed American traders that were being rounded up by the army. So then they turned to ships. Basically. Um, it was not a new thing. This is there's a was a historical precedent for prison ships um, dating back to the earlier part of the 18th century. But essentially, by the I think it's like October of 1776, the British start to to experiment with these you know they had to get the soldiers over from britain right mm-hmm. and they use these massive transport ships and so basically they took some of the more run down older ones and they floated them just off the coast of brooklyn in wallabout bay which is where the brooklyn navy yard is today they stripped them down of anything valuable all the rigging the ordinances all the tools everything that was on there and basically made them into these just these stripped down hulks and they began transferring um prisoners from the overcrowded pens and prisons that were in brooklyn and new york so you know i think when we think of prisons today we think of a certain kind of I don't want to say infrastructure, but, you know, there's certain things that that a prison needs to have or should have for basic human requirements. Right. And your description of what was done to these ships suggests to me that that was not at the top of the priority list in terms of what how were people going to be. What kind of sleeping quarters did they have? What kind of eating situation did they have? What kind of bathroom facilities did they have? I get the sense this is not something that is being factored in. In a lot of ways, this is a pre-modern era. And I say that in the context of two things. Um, in the context of human rights, mm-hmm. we talked about how nationalism is something we take for granted today. I think there are standards of human rights. Yes. That we absolutely take for granted today that are actually really, really new, like maybe a century old Mm -hmm, new. And mm -hmm. so all those standards that you described, things that we assume that people would have assumed at the time, definitely did not exist. They were certainly thought about, but not, you know, it's these hegemonic ideas that we take today the other is the idea of organization like the idea that there would be a bureaucracy that would organize the things that you talked about now the british army was a bureaucracy but they were working on the fly these people had not spent a lot of time here right they were thousands of miles from home Many of them didn't want to be here. They were so resentful of yeah. being here. They didn't get paid all that right. well. Right. Um, so this was an enormous inconvenience to them. This is an enormous tax on them and gives us a sense of why they were willing to subject American patriots to such awful conditions. Let's talk about those awful conditions <laughs> with a with an explicit right, warning. Right, right, right. Yeah, this, this starts to not, get really, really not pleasant yeah, stuff yeah, that happened yeah. on these ships almost immediately. The conditions were deplorable on the insides of the ships. People weren't allowed up to get fresh air, and so they were literally in the bottom of the hulls of these ships. And because there were so many prisoners, they were so incredibly crowded that some of the survivors who report back say that there wasn't even the ability to lay down and sleep there wow. without sleeping man on top of of man. Wow. And as far as food was concerned, I mean, people were fed, if at all, once a day. 
rotten bread. Like let's let's get into Maggoty the <laughs> rotten bread. This like really weird watery stew called burgoo. Mm-hmm. Vermin were running rampant. Rats, lice, uh, dead bodies. You know this is this is a um, this is a scene from The Walking Dead yeah, <laughs> in this prison is. ship. It is. You know, I mean, these people are literally either at death's door or they have about just walked through it. And remember that this is not, again, a professionalized group of soldiers. In some cases, these aren't even necessarily soldiers. Um, these are just people yeah. who have been deemed traitors for various like, legitimate and less legitimate reasons and all of a sudden find themselves in these conditions that kind of defy the imagination in their horror. And, you know, and it, it makes you, I mean, I think one of the things that this points out, which is certainly consistent across time, sadly, is the way that people can either stand by and watch or participate in a certain kind of mistreatment of a fellow human being. And how they justify it. And how they justify it, right? And certainly war lends itself to the creating of an other, of an enemy, constructing someone in a way that you don't see them as human or requiring the same kind of human treatment as you. I think an important context to understanding how your average British soldier could do this to their essentially their fellow Britain, mm-hmm. right? They were all supposedly British subjects is the context of British colonialism, right? And I think, you know, normally we associate, you know, the terrible treatment of colonials to a racial hierarchy, right? right? Right. But I think there's more to it than just a racial hierarchy, right? right? There is really a notion of British superiority versus their inferior uh, sort of colonists and colonies around the world that certainly did, must have applied here as well. And even this notion of traitorism, of being a traitor, allowed the creation of of this other that allowed them to su- submit people to like, truly animalistic conditions, you know, living in your own excrement, dumping dead bodies off of the side of boats with a hoot and a, you know, damned traitor or damned Yankee, quelling any kind of fear of an insurrection with floggings and beatings. Mm-hmm, I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, for people to stand by and watch this treatment, I mean, you do it because you no longer see this person as deserving of the same things that you feel you deserve. And you know, that certainly is a on you know, an ongoing lesson absolutely. for us when we think about war and what war does. In or, a global context, a, yeah, particularly. Absolutely. Yeah. A lot of people died from disease more than wounds or battle or you know, and this is this is true, I think, for war even into the 20th century. The Revolutionary War, I believe, is the worst uh, sort of ratio of of illness deaths to battle deaths. Something like 90% of the deaths wow. that occurred during the American yeah. Revolution were from disease, our manifestations Yikes. of disease, lots of different diseases, of course. I mean, one important thing to remember is that disease isn't just infectious disease. Right. Right? Like tons of people died of dysentery, of scurvy, mm-hmm. just these, the, you know, scur- you can fix scurvy with an orange. Like, like you know, in dysentery right. is about clean water. Right. Right. So uh, these are conditional diseases yeah. Yeah. that yeah. are exacerbated by the conditions of war, especially a total war right. like this one. The circumstances that concentrate the level of casualty right. are, are human-created circumstances. Yeah, I mean, that's right? a central tenet of the history of public health, yeah. right? Is that lots of people think of disease as just a, a medical issue or a biological issue when infected at its at its heart it's a social issue. Right. Right? Right. And war again, it's like brings that 
to the fore. But there were infectious diseases right, at this time right. that really did just beyond like scurvy and dysentery that ravaged, just ravaged the Continental Army. And the last thing that you wanted to have is a concentration of people in the face of these right. diseases. So right. one of the diseases was, of course, smallpox, yeah. right? This plagued yeah. the, the colonies for generations from even the first settlements, right? I wonder if our viewers have seen the John Adams miniseries that was on HBO because there is a really vivid and gruesome scene in which um, Abigail Adams chooses to inoculate her children um, has a doctor come and the doctor brings like dead bodies in a wagon and like you know gets the pustules I mean it's really funky and then they inoculate the right. children and eventually the, the the children do come down with it but it really gives a sense of the like the controversy right. around inoculation right. at the time which I think we often associate with later but people were really experimenting with the idea of you know basically exposing yourself to an illness in order to prevent that illness down the road. And indeed, one of the reasons why Americans were hit so hard is because the British and Hessians had been exposed to smallpox and actually brought an enormous amount of immunity with them when they when they right. came to America. Right, right. And actually one of the most controversial decisions of the America of the American Revolution was in 1777 when Washington basically ordered the forced inoculation of the army. Did it work? I mean, did it work? Yeah. Did it work? Yeah. Some people were likely inoculated. Some people died from it, right? I mean, it was the the problem of inoculation that Abigail Adams faced and so many right. other people faced is that it was an enormous risk and it came with both risk and reward. So let's talk about how the disease played out on these, these ships. You have these concentrations of people, like over-concentration of people packed unhealthily, unsanitarily, poor food, poor living conditions. I almost don't have to wonder too hard how this turned out. And also, let's add to that, like the complete lack of medical care, right? So um, some of the witnesses who recall the ships remember that literally no physicians attended on the ship, even though they were run rampant with smallpox, right? And so Essentially, in some ways, for the British, people dying solved issues in a way that curing them um, did not, right? And so, you know, some historians have estimated that, you know, seven or eight people a day were dying, adding up to those remarkable numbers of tens of thousands these of ships. people um, by the end of the war on the ships. Yep. Buried in basically shallow graves along the coast wow. of Wallabout Bay in wow. Brooklyn. So we talked about how people in New York were kind of like, um, for the people who had, who were who were patriots, they got out if they could get out. Mm-hmm. The people who were loyalists, they stayed and they cheered, whatever. And then you had like the I'm not in it folks who were like, I'm a wait and see. How the they're seeing dead bodies for sure. pile up on the shore of, of Brooklyn by seven to eight a day. Was word coming out, was word getting out about what was going on in these ships? How, what kind of impact did this have on the people who were who were here in terms of their feeling about what was happening? I mean, I think you're right. You you were here. You knew. You saw. You know, and that must have been a remarkable thing to witness. And I'm sure played a major role in pushing those wait and see people to an outright hatred yeah. of the British by yeah. the end of the American Revolution. It's worth noting that a lot of colonies knew and that you actually see reports of prison ships in a lot of newspapers across the colonies 
It's actually where the first reports of this 11,600 death number comes from. It's it's contemporary, actually, mm, wow. the period. And yeah. in the next second, you and I will talk a little bit about um, the way that memory clouds mm-hmm. our understanding mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. of this. But I also, one of the things that I always think about is like, what would it have meant to resist or rebel yeah. from this yeah. in the context of seeing, you know, your your fellow Brooklynites and New Yorkers buried in shallow graves along the coast. And I think one of the things that is so sad and I think hard about this is that in a way the horrors of the prison ships likely constrained any sort of desire to, you know, fight back against the British because of the idea that you then might be put in a prison right, ship and right. suffer these these horrible fates. So it had an incredible chilling effect. But it doesn't mean that there weren't people who fought back, right? Yeah. So there were examples of people who escaped. There's this one man, Abraham Remsen, who owned Remsen's mill. And according to survivors... He tried to provide fresh produce and food to ailing prisoners who escaped. We know that prisoners themselves on the ships, at least one ship set it on fire. Yeah, there was a fire on one of the ships and it's largely believed that it was set on fire by the prisoners inside in an attempt to protest and to escape. This is really fascinating. I'm not trying to be presentist, but as we, you know, throughout this whole uh, time that we've been thinking about this episode and talking about this issue, it's not too hard to think about how we think about prisons today. Mm-hmm. Certainly the way we've talked about prisons and the way we think about prisons has gone to gone a radical change in our society, largely due to scholarship and historical studies. But when I came across this story of these prisoners possibly setting fire to their ship, I thought about like prison rebellions yep. in the 20th century, Absolutely. right? Like, so it just kind of goes to say that all kinds of disastrous things are damaging things happen to people who are confined in subhuman or inhuman conditions, right? And it's so hard to assess the psychological damage of people in the 18th century through Mm -hmm. our lenses that are so steeped in the language of therapy and psychoanalysis today, but it must have been so scarring. I think one of the things that is really important to me about this story is recentering New York as a like the epicenter of suffering during mm, the Revolutionary mm-hmm, War. Mm-hmm. I don't know that people normally really think about New York as the center of that. I mean, think, yeah. I think people think of New England, yeah. Bunker Hill, and I think people right. think of you know, Yorktown and right. like the victorious end of it. But something like almost thirty nine thousand people died in total of all all causes during the American Revolution. Over half of those were in New York, in prisons in New York. Yeah. At the beginning, when we think of Brooklyn, we think of big, bad, and tough. And I think as a nation or even as a society, we have a much more difficult time coming to terms with our losses. Yeah. And and of course, those losses and the meaning of those losses then get clouded as we go (laughs) through the decades by the political realities of the 1780s, 90s, and then into the 19th century. And I think that's what you and I want to get into in our next segment is not just what happened on the prison ships, but how they came to be remembered. Love this podcast? Then head over to Apple Podcasts and search for Flatbush and Maine to subscribe, rate, and review us. This increases our rankings and makes it easier for interested listeners like you to find us.
So here, imagine being a sailor and captured mm-hmm. and brought to your prison. And you realize that your prison is this terrible, hulking boat. As you walk on board, all the prisoners below are yelling up to you, telling you how lamentable their situation is. One man shouts up, quote, Death has no relish for such skeleton carcasses as we are, but he will now have a feast upon you fresh comers. It's pretty terrifying stuff. Well, yeah, I just for people who can't see my face, I just opened my eyes. That's So I just read to you from a publication that came out in 1829. And it was the recollections of a prison ship survivor named Thomas Dring. And it was published actually after his death by a man named Albert Green. So we're talking about memories of the prison ships that were not only, you know, 50 years after the event, but also through a kind of a telephone, um, a story Mm -hmm. handed down from one person Mm -hmm. to another. And I think it shows us that almost as soon as a tragedy ends, um, it becomes difficult to separate myth from reality in terms of the details that are able, we're able to glean about it. Yeah, this reminds me of our episode on the Brooklyn Theater Fire. Definitely check it out. You know, it's, I want to say it's kind of sad and maybe it's just a reality of our society that the minute a tragedy hits, things are put in motion to put this tragedy to use. And there's almost very little time to think about the humanity of the experience before you start getting into the politics of it. And, you know, this has a particular importance for for historians because we're constantly looking for eyewitness accounts and testimonies and primary sources. And we have to be very cognizant of how our sources themselves are constructed and when they're constructed and what they reflect and what kind of choices are made. I'm interested in hearing more from Thomas Dring's testimony and kind of seeing how we can parse out what it says, not only about what he actually experienced on the prison ship, but how our society, you know, was coming to terms with it about 50 years later. Right. Like we always say about primary sources that are of recording something earlier, Mm -hmm. they're in some ways about the topic they're talking about, but what they're really about is about 1829, right? And so we kind of need to know what happened between the end of the war in 1783 and 1829 to really truly understand what's trying us to tell us. You know, I guess we'll, instead of taking a deficit approach, a deficit view of this, it's kind of killing two birds with one stone. We're both exploring, we're exploring two histories simultaneously. And that's essentially that's how memory works, really. Memory is the construction of the past in context with the present. So, exactly. Yeah. Well, there's something about New York, too, that is, like, in a lot of ways, so, like, there's desirous to move on. Yeah. Right? Yeah. When you look at the decades after the American Revolutionary War, New York, which was already, like, a very growing city at the time, just expands rapidly, right? Its population booms. It goes through this massive, this massive building boom. And a lot of the buildings that were affected, and again, this is not Brooklyn, this is New York, right? right? Like, you know, those old sugar refineries, a lot of those were torn down. People just didn't have time, right? So you're basically to think telling about the me, past. you're basically telling me that New York City has always been a keep it moving. <laughs> they town. are. They They're are. like, keep it moving. We got stuff to it. do. They had stuff yeah. to do. And they, and honestly, and it was a period of boom. It was a mm-hmm. period of 
money making. It was a period of growth, of immigration. They were moving forward. But this is another great time for us to return to the fact that Brooklyn was different. Brooklyn was not. Right? Brooklyn still had those dead bodies on the shore. That's right. That's exactly right. Washing up. People would describe in the decades after the the shore of Wallabout Bay looked like a pumpkin patch in Yikes. autumn. I mean, the, the skulls wow. were like little pumpkins wow. dotting the shoreline. It's still tiny. Yeah. It's, you know, Brooklyn's population doesn't begin to really boom and grow until really the 1820s. Right. So Brooklyn is left in a lot of ways to really grapple with this. Literally um, pick up the pieces. Literally pick up the pieces um, and gather them and gather the bones of them. Also, there are important things nationally going on that begin to change people's understanding of what happened on those mm-hmm. on those horrible mm-hmm. prison ships. Mm-hmm. And I guess the biggest one that I think of is like the international politics in the 1790s right. and beyond. Right. right. And the way that it creates in a lot of ways creates the political system that we have inherited That's today. Right. That's right. The original political divide that emerges at this point has a lot to do with what kind of country people envision, um, but it's reflected through the kinds of, I don't say loyalties, but the kind of sentiments they have towards the two great European powers at the time, France and, and England. It's hard to imagine in the day and age that we're living in um, <laughs> a world without political parties right. <laughs> or about political divisiveness. Yeah. But that was Washington's vision, right? Mm-hmm. He His biggest fear was factionalization, the creation of parties. And then, of course, his worst fear comes almost right. immediately yeah. to I life. Mean, well, he, he, and he tried his best to pull the two together. And one was represented by Alexander Hamilton, which was... British friendly, kind of hierarchy friendly. Yeah, hierarchy friendly. You know, very uh, suspicious of the masses and what a mob could do if you just left to their own devices and advocated centralized leadership and a strong federal government. And and the Hamiltonians were, they tended to be Northeastern, urbane, New Yorkers, yeah, cosmopolitan. Merchants and the like. And on the other side were the Jeffersonians. And Jefferson, of course, was a planner from Virginia and envisioned this agrarian republic uh, for the United States, did not believe in a centralized power, was inspired by the French Revolution. Was there. Yeah. The French Revolution. Was there. And so, and which was seen as the a murderous mob rampaging throughout France and and Jefferson actually believed that the best way to protect freedom was to have that freedom be in the hands of the people. He envisioned a, a republic that was very small in terms of its power and its power being decentralized and distributed to the states. And these two sides, Jefferson was the secretary of state and Alexander Hamilton was the secretary of treasury under George Washington who tried to hold them together and they clashed significantly. Absolutely. And this legacy of seemingly elitism, yes, in yes, British inspired elitism yes. on one side and then masses inspired. Yes, French inspired populism. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Then plays out in the early, uh, the early 19th century in important ways. And one of the most important sort of organizations to come out of that kind of masses, Democratic, Republican, yeah. Jeffersonian yeah. vision yeah. is, of course, the Tammany Society, yes. which actually is founded in the 1790s, but really comes into new import in the beginning 
beginning of the of the 19th century as more and more immigrants begin to come to the United States. And so they are they love Jefferson, they hate Britain, they hate Hamilton, and through this lens, we can start to see the saga of the prison ships become less about this like tragic event that took place and more about the creation of true martyrs. Right. Um right. so they're like as they're, an indictment. Exactly. Yeah. And then and then also giving um a kind of like a new agency to the people who died mm-hmm. on that ship. Like mm-hmm. a lot of the people on the ship were just like unfortunates right. who got swept up and right. found themselves in these right. awful prisons. But after the t- t- the sort of Tammany Society got a hold of this story, they became martyrs. Right. And I think right. that shift in narrative is really, really important and benefits Tammany in enormous ways. Combined with this resurgent patriotism and the recasting of the uh, victims of the prison ship as heroic martyrs, is the emergent market revolution and the the desire to find products to sell to people and stories to sell to people. And so this not only becomes a political tool, this becomes a product that people want to buy. Especially as we start moving into the 1810s and 1820s, you're seeing the, this generation of participants in the Revolutionary War dying off and this increasing interest and focus on preserving their histories. It's actually during these decades when, like, for example, the New York Historical Society is founded, right? There's a growing idea uh, that we need to preserve this history. Mm-hmm. And there are tons of people who are also willing to ma- wanting to make a buck off right. of it, right? right? And so you do see the kind of the interweaving of not only like these seemingly factual narratives with the literary market at the mm-hmm. time, mm-hmm. a growing interest in kind of like dramatic detail and creating narratives and personal narratives at the time. And it's in this context that we start to see more and more people publishing relatively successful uh, recollections of their time on the, the prison ships, both as a way to make money and as a way of playing into this kind of anti-British sentiment. Right. This is this is pretty messy when you think about it, because, you you know, you have and I'm going to say the purists who are interested in the recovery of the past. But you, of course, but, that even but of course, that doesn't <laughs> exist. But so you have you have like an interest in the historical, an interest in preserving the past. You have memory in the way that it's functioning in a kind of sentimental way. Right. For people and giving them a sense of wholeness and continuity and so forth. But then you have this kind of like I would consider dirtying motives of politics and of economics right factoring into the production of this past it's not exceptional because this is consistent we we can find this all over but you have the the story of the prison ships now implicate so many different sets of interests it's so funny. I can't help but as you're talking, just keep thinking fake news. Yeah. Fake news. I mean, and what it really makes me think about is like the fact that objectivity doesn't even exist yeah. at this point. The notion of objectivity like is really a 20th century notion. But as you're talking a about- A dream, an aspiration. An aspiration. I mean, I think, I think it all also, we can- also, <laughs> maybe this is a different episode, but also like maybe it's just dead now. Like, it maybe is. it was only no, a century I, I, yeah, long. I think so. And I think-, I think um, you know, and I think this is true for for scholars is to aspire to transparency, you well, know, yeah. and just saying like, here's here's what I'm doing. 
And thoughtful analysis. And so yeah. that's where I think we come in when we're looking at this is because to be able to pull anything out of the Dring manuscript, we need to understand this context and we need to understand like the so many scrims that right, we have to pull right, back right, from the lens right. to actually be able to glean anything from this manuscript. So let's let's get into let's that. So I mean it. we there was a beautiful, eloquent opening line about death is waiting mm-hmm. to eat your carcass. <laughs> um but let's unpack this yes. document. Well first of all, well, it's a book. It's, it's a, a book. published book. Yeah. And so for those of you coming to our library, you can search for this in Bobcat and we'll put a link to it in our show notes. But it's also available. It's an ebook online. So right. you all will send the link to that as well on the show notes so everyone can actually read this whole thing. Now, one of the reasons why this is so readable is because it isn't just the murmurings of a dying sailor, so right? True. Like it's so this true. Is, this is a text that has been massage to make it friendlier to what our brain expects of narrative no, convention? No, exactly. And so uh, actually we keep talking about Thomas Dring, but right. the real author of this is a guy named Albert Green. So, but just a little background on this is that Thomas Dring, yeah, he was on the Jersey. He was 25 when he was taken prisoner on it. And all these are his memories, but there were memories that were written in a handwritten manuscript by Dring in 1824, the year before he died. And then they were given, Dring gives them to this guy, Albert Green, who after he dies says, I'm going to, I mean, this is kind of messy stuff. I mean, it was like a diary, right? He's like, I'm going to clean this up and I'm going to. I'm going to make it into a beautiful narrative and I'm going to publish it. And he tells us that in the preface of the book. Right. So in the preface, uh, Albert Green writes of um, Dring, his writing accordingly abounds with repetitions of not only the most important, but even the most minute occurrences. These, although they add value to a manuscript like this, proving the strength and accuracy of his memory by the perfect accordance of his descriptions of the same facts made at different times, Still in a published book, they could be viewed as useless redundancies, at least. He then goes on to talk about the changes that he made. He says, it was necessary to divide the narrative into distinct and separate chapters, and consequently to transpose and connect detached facts under their proper heads in order to produce a degree of uniformity in the whole. But while the circumstances not only allowed, but it required full liberty to be taken with the language and arrangement of the narrative, still nothing has been added and no fact or occurrence of the least importance has been omitted. I like how he's like playing both sides here. Yes. You know, he's sort of like, um, so just so you know, I took full liberty to edit this thing, but... It's right. completely factual. Right. This guy knew exactly right. what he was talking about. I'm keeping it perfectly. So, but still, I've made some changes. So he's kind of, you know, he's justifying his decisions, but he's also kind of vouching for the veracity of the details that he's going to get. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's he's walking a, a fine line here, and um, he's letting us know that he he did it with the utmost integrity, of and course. he did it perfectly. You of know, course. Uh, nothing was changed, nothing was omitted. But then he says full liberty, right? And so to me that that phrase or the, those two words jump out um, and raises an eyebrow a little bit. Yeah, and I think like, when we read this thing, full liberty really means that he's drawing on a lot of different sort of cultural phenomena at yeah. the time to shape this. First of all, 
I think the thing that always stands out to me when I read it is that it has this like literary quality to it and mm-hmm. that there the most important thing here is like that there's this awful villain yeah right? he's yeah, able to yeah. find a perfect embodiment of the banality of evil that it, that that represents the person well, what's a good story without a good villain exactly exactly and so and this guy even has like an amazing villain name right so it's um commissary sprout perfect the perfect disney villain i can see his drawing right now so this is how Thomas Drang via Albert Green introduces us to uh, Sprout. Soon after, two large gondolas or boats came alongside, in one of which was seated the notorious David Sprout, the commissary of prisoners. This man was an American refugee, universally detested for the cruelty of his conduct and the insolence of his manners. And then he, he talks about Sprout pointing to uh, one of the ships saying to the prisoners there rebels there is the cage for you i mean just it raises so many questions like did dring write that down in his diary like what what, was that a liberty was that a full liberty that 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 albert green was taking here i want to say it was a liberty it's a heck of a dialogue (laughs) right i mean it really is you know um but it's so it's so evocative it is i mean just the descriptors you know detested the the way that he is painting this picture of him and then when you see the text the quote their rebels there is the cage for you. There and cage are italicized. I mean, these are, this is an emphasis. It's just like, you know, cage. And I mean, he's clearly this villain. Before the age of movies, it's got like a screenplay. Oh, it is a screenplay. Sort of like a this is a car- This is a, I was saying cartoon but because it's just kind of a flattening of, you know, characters. Yeah. But it definitely is. This is a, this is a story that I would want to see. There's also, like, to me, another twist with Sprout is that he's not British, right? He's right. an American refugee. So he's even worse than the British in the yes. fact that he's, like, yes. a traitor's traitor. Do you yes. know what I mean? Like, yes. he is um, he is an American who is, who is, is really punishing his fellow Americans. And that, I think, means something different in 1829 right than it would in the reality of 1776 when those identities are actually so muddled right right right. but even with all of the narrative conventions that isn't to say that there isn't some very real information here to be learned yeah, I mean, it's funny because this is a personal narrative and so are oral histories. And there is, we're going to talk about an oral history yeah. obviously in the next second, but I think there there is something here. Like there are details that you can get of personal experience that you probably couldn't get from any other source. And exactly. one of the ones that jumps out to me is where he talks actually about smallpox. And so we talked about the horrors of smallpox during the Revolutionary War. And this is, um, I'm going to read from Dring's firsthand encounter with smallpox. He wrote, The next disgusting object which met my sight was a man suffering with the smallpox, and in a few minutes I found myself surrounded by many others, laboring under the same disease in every stage of its progress. As I had never had the smallpox, it became necessary that I should be inoculated, and there being no proper person on board to perform the operation, I concluded to act as my own physician. On looking about me, I soon found a man in the proper stage of the disease and desired him to favor me with some of the matter for the purpose. And remember, the matter is like his... his to pus- favor his, me. His, mm. pus- his pustule, basically. Mm. <laughs> so he readily complies. He's willing to like give him his, his, his wound, right? His 
guts. And um, basically, Drink finds a pin. And he scratches the edge of his finger and he sticks the pin in the guy and he sticks the disease in his stuff and he wraps it up. And by the next morning, he finds that the wound has begun to fester, a sure symptom that the application had taken effect. And I just, I know, first of all, it's gross, I know. But it's just a remarkable thing that this guy on the fly, kind of in this atmosphere of Mm -hmm. understanding the problem of smallpox, but not truly understanding how it works. He's just a sailor himself, makes this like lucky decision and it ends up working out in his favor when it obviously could have gone so wrong in so many ways. The excerpt that you read is the kind of detail that sticks with the reader long after having read it. This story of the prison ship and the prison ship martyrs as they became known still continues to resonate in really interesting ways, right? It's not a story that people let go of for various reasons. Yeah, I mean, definitely, as we talked about earlier, Tammany continues to leverage this for their benefit. And so it continues to be used as kind of a political tool. By 1808, they're able to raise private and state money to put up what they propose is going to be this sort of lavish monument to um, to, to honor the martyrs. Um, of course, it's not that lavish. <laughs> they get a decent amount of money, but in true Tammany style... They kind of cheap out on the monument, and within a couple of years of when they put it up in 1808, it had become kind of run down. Mm. Where did the money go? Like, where does most Tammany money go, <laughs> right? Um, and so you already see this like moment when it's becoming like a political tool mm-hmm. um, that is leached of the meaning that you see in the details, like Drin's accounting of smallpox, and it takes on this kind of mythic meaning. And then, of course... Another monument is built at a very different time. In the end of the 19th century, many of the bones were then moved into Fort Greene Park, and visitors today can actually go and see the enormous obelisk um, that stands at the top of the park that honors, again, the, the people that are called now the martyrs. I wonder how many people know when they're just chilling in Fort Greene that they are chilling on top of, you know, pinpricked smallpox bodies. So I I can answer that, actually. Well, anecdotally, at least, because um, I've spent a lot of time there and I've asked people about Mm -hmm. this. And I actually, in my time as a tour guide, I also got to, like, talk to people who were there when I was giving tours of the park. And, like, in my experience, the answer is almost no no Mm. one. And even though it's marked right on there, um, nobody really knows what the prison ship martyrs even means, right? I mean, and I think to me, the thing that is so heartbreaking about it is just the sheer number of lives lost and the remarkable human sacrifice that was made by New Yorkers um, is something that is um, not even remotely on the radar of most people who live here today. Now, of course, we don't have any oral histories from <laughs> the prison ship. And, you know, this is a limitation of oral histories. We've talked about this before. We tackled this when we did the Brooklyn Theater Fire, that oral histories are a new way of documenting the past, new in terms of the last century. But that doesn't mean that oral histories can't tell us something about a past beyond the time that they're documenting by providing us a kind of new set of questions to ask, new ways to think about the past. And so for that, we have chosen excerpts from an interview that is about 
the experience in prison as it relates to issues of public health, very similar to some of the themes we've been covering in, in humanity and human rights and the marginalization and how marginalized populations are treated. And with that, we're going to listen to the oral history interview of Alice Terson from the AIDS Brooklyn Oral History Project collection, uh, which includes oral histories conducted for an exhibition undertaken by Brooklyn Historical Society in 1993. Alice Terson was an HIV positive Latina lesbian born in 1952. She was in recovery and had been formally incarcerated at the time of her interview and she worked at an aid service organization in Manhattan while living in Brooklyn. So in this clip, Alice Turson um, describes going to prison in 1985 before she herself was diagnosed. And basically, she describes her first encounter with somebody who is HIV positive. I was in Rackers Island, and there was this woman there who people were saying had AIDS. I remember that then I seen AIDS for the first time. And I believe that was she, she had dementia. She had some stuff happening. Um, and she would spend, she was still in the same housing area that I was in, and she had, she'd spend all this time like in standing in, uh, in front of the mirror, like staring at herself. She was a black woman who had like this, she, I mean, I had, done time with her at other times. Um, and she was a small little black lesbian and her skin was no longer brown. Her skin had like this, this grayish ashy color to it. Um, and, and I would walk like around her like real scared because whatever she had was gonna jump on me. It was kind of like the feeling. And I remember it, you know, it was like, like all these toilet stool, uh, stalls reminded me of a stable, really. And in front of it was the showers, maybe about maybe eight, eight toilet stalls and, and eight showers across the room. And they faced each other. And I used to watch what shower she used, because I wasn't going into the shower that she used. And I watched what toilet bowl she used, because I wasn't going to sit on it. Um, and I wouldn't walk around her bed. I'd walk toward the other side of our housing area so that I wouldn't. And I hated when she was standing in front of that mirror and I needed to go to the bathroom because I had a pass by her. And I was like really terrified of this, this virus. Um, scared, that's not scared of her, but scared, well yeah, scared of her scared of this virus, scared that whatever she had I was going to get, and I really didn't have any clear understanding. There was no education going on in, in the prison system at all at that time. Um, when you got really sick, they isolated you. That's what they did with you. Meanwhile, they just left you in the housing area. Um, and, and I continued to go in and out of you know, the prison system, and I, I continued to see people come in like with AIDS. You know, and and people, she has AIDS, stay away from her, you know, I'm drinking from a cup, don't sit on her bed, you know, that kind of shit. It's funny because when we were talking about Dring, we were talking about smallpox. Yeah. We were talking about how they didn't really know anything about germ theory. They didn't truly know 
the nature of the illness or how it could be controlled. And there's this assumption, I think, often that like as we have marched through history, right. we get a right. better understanding right. of how infectious disease works, which is like, you right. know, to some extent true, but to a lot of extent not true. And AIDS was the disease that in- truly interrupted this idea that yeah. we could ever conquer or eradicate right. infectious right. disease. And so it's a fascinating comparison of the prison ships to I this mean, moment in this, 85, when right? I, when I heard this clip, it immediately <laughs> brought to mind the passage we read of Drain's yeah. encounter with smallpox. Yeah. And of course it's a very different experience. And so to me it is using the very different personal experiences in Drain and in Tursen's narrative to get at what they're illustrating about a structural arrangement of power or a systemic issue, right? We spent a lot of time unpacking some of what that was in the case of the prison ship. Maybe people are more willing to do that with the prison ship because we see and we've been, and the people who are in the prison ship have been recast as these heroic martyrs, whereas an Alice Terson would not be seen as a heroic figure. So true. But... They're still human beings, yes. and I think that's what we have to come back to. Because you know what? If the war had gone in a different way, we wouldn't be looking We'd at be the prison ship martyrs narrative. as like heroic martyrs, yeah. right? Yeah. And so, like, I want us to think about what institutions do to human beings. And so, in both the case of the prison ship and the case of the prison that Alice Turson is in, they're both sites of public health crisis. Right. They're, yeah. And they're also isolating. Yes. Right. I mean, yes. I actually think this is like a prison ship is a literal quarantine. Yes. It is, there is that you yes. cannot. It is in the middle of the water. Yeah. Right. This is they. this was describing a quarantine. Right. Yeah. A putting away and a forgetting of people in a lot of ways. It also made me think about the issues of education mm-hmm. and treatment as human rights issues. Yes. So if we were talking about this or the history of human rights and the rise of human rights, by the 80s, human rights is a vernacular right. that people are right. deeply familiar yeah. with, right? But at the same time, what is so striking about Tursen, especially poignant because we know later she contracts the disease, is a complete lack of understanding about the way that AIDS works, right? right? right. And then this paranoia and this almost like psychological torture of right. it. And then, of course, what we don't, because we don't have right. this woman said, what was it like for the woman with AIDS? What was right. her isolation? Well, what was her the, yeah, torture? And it's the way that disease makes someone a stranger to you. Yes. Because she says, like, I knew this woman. We'd gone That's in right. and out yep. together. Yep. But all of a sudden, I don't want to walk by her. I, I want to use a shower right. that she's using. I don't want to use a toilet that she's using. I wish she would get out of the mirror so I could pass by. The way that disease creates this distance between people who once knew each other. You now, I don't know you, right? That's right. And the other thing is that I got from this clip is that, you know, it's deeply, and this is one of the things where I, I like Royal Street, we talked about empathy so much in this podcast. Tarson is isn't overly heroic. Yeah. And she isn't casting the, yeah. the Sprout character. That's right. That's right. She's neither Drain right. nor Sprout. Well, in the real honesty, like yeah. you can, she's so clearly speaking from a sense of perspective and like understands critically what was going through her own mind at a time and coming at it from a very different perspective. Yeah. yeah. Po- not only post diagnosis, but also post drug use. Well, you right? know, and I think we talked about how like the remembering of a thing tells two stories the yes. story of the thing that's remembered and the story of when it's remembered. And I do think someone having HIV looking back 
versus someone who does not have HIV looking back may may have described yeah, it in a different true. way, right? Absolutely. I mean, I also just, the, the other thing that stands out to me here is that, you know, we talked a lot about what are the factors that contribute to the dehumanization mm-hmm. of a prisoner and the, ident- the very identity of a yeah. prisoner as something that makes you othered right. and seen as less worthy. Right. And then on top of that, a disease, yeah. right? And yeah. a disease that all diseases come with a set of social assumptions and stereotypes, right? And AIDS is absolutely one of those. So this idea that this this woman that she's describing is either in the population untreated, right. like who deserves right. medical treatment? Right. And it was an right. issue in 1776, and it was an issue in 1985. In 1776, no physicians were going on board to treat these people. That's right. In 1985, Tursen describes a woman who is put in general population, left to watch her skin turn like yeah. turn gray, yeah. and then when things got bad, put in isolation. Yeah, and then and the, edu- the prison is. Pre- Providing no education. Right. So people are basically whispering right. and, and having to, they're doing the equivalent of the pinprick, yes. right? Like Drang had to like use his own devices they to figure out how to keep himself yes. healthy. And these folks are like, well, just don't sit on that toilet right. bowl, you know? That's and right. I think that that is, I don't want to say it's shameful, but it's kind it's of sobering that yeah. we just tread this ground when we're faced with this these challenges. This was only 30 years ago. Yeah. So yeah. I think there's like another side of this story, which is the relationship between Tursen and prison and her ongoing struggles with drug abuse. And so that's let's listen to one more clip that gets into that. Toward the end of my active addiction, I, I used to go into jail and, um, and I would get on the methadone program. If all you were doing, if you were doing under a year, um, they would... Um, they keep you on methadone and that's what you wanted. You know, 40 milligrams a day. Um, and it was something to negotiate with. That if you didn't have any money, so you can pick up your methadone and spit it back in a bottle and sell it to somebody else for cigarettes or cookies or... So usually when I would roll into jail, I'd get on the KEEP program. They called it, I don't know if they still call it the same thing, but I would get on the KEEP program and... <coughs> And I get methadone so that I can trade it for cigarettes, you know, and I swallow a little bit of it so that I wouldn't get sick from withdrawal um, for the first couple of days. And, and then after that, you know, in the beginning you get it for, uh, um, for two weeks and for a 14-day detox, they call it. Um, and if you were doing something like six months and you were going to go back out to the street, you could make a decision, look, put me on the program because when I go back out to the street, I'm going to stay on the methadone program. And they would do that. Um, so usually that's what I was doing to at the end. In the beginning, I would just take my detox and, and trade it for cigarettes or whatever. And, and I, <laughs> I take my stay in jail as a time to recoup. Why well, call it get my ribs out of hock? Um, and I just like, you know, like, like take it easy till I hit back to, back on the streets. I knew when I went out, I was going to use again. And my attitude was, well, when I go out, I'll really be able to get plastered because I won't, my system will be clean. I'm always interested as oral historian, how the personal story illustrates more than the person and what are the forces that are implicated. I'm not doing this to move away from the 
this is an addicted person talking about how they satisfied their addiction and how prison came to be a part of the cycle of wellness and illness. And so I don't want to dismiss the kinds of responsibilities that this person has and accountability that they have for their actions. But I do think it is damning that the prison came to function as a health clinic. Yeah, and a crappy one. And a crappy but, one. But what she had available to yes. her. What we get from the story of the prison ship and what we're getting from this oral history, and this is it's not just this oral history, is this notion of how prison is serving as a poor replacement for what the society is supposed to do for its population in the first place. Yeah. And I think the thing that, I mean, I think what this clip really hammers home for me is that prisons are social constructs that have different meanings at different times mm-hmm. right and so we were drawing in the first clip on some of the interesting similarities right. between you know, across right. centuries right. but here i think we see you know the prison system that we were talking about when we were talking about um about the prison ships was acute yeah it was ad hoc yes. right yes. um it was it revealed all kinds of um sort of structural power imbalances right. but it was part of a a moment of crisis right. i right. think this is a moment of crisis but a very different yeah. one right yes. this yes. is not acute this is a massive structure yes like a, yes. a massive yes. structural problem Agreed. that is revealed Agreed. in this Agreed. clip right it doesn't have an end yeah. right it doesn't have a solution um and so where we could a, we could excuse yeah. the prison ship that's right as that's like, right this is what people had at the moment and and when that moment passed it was over that's right we don't have that excuse that, now. that's exactly right In honor of BHS's new exhibition, Waterfront, which opened at BHS Dumbo, which we encourage everyone to check out, multiple visits. Like, I don't think you can exhaust (laughs) it. It's not something that you can take in just in one visit, but you should definitely check it out. We have a bunch of programs coming up in this month that are themed in line with the exhibition. Julie, what is it that you have your eye on? I am excited about something coming up on Wednesday, April 18th here at our Pierpont building. It's an event called Invisible Water, Invisible Watersheds, the Gowanus Canal as a case study. And so this is going to be a conversation about urban ecology, stressed city ecosystems, and innovative design solutions through the lens of that most fascinating and filthy of waterways here in Brooklyn, the Gowanus Canal. I love the participants. These are all such smart and thoughtful people. Eric Sanderson, who is Senior Conservation Ecologist at Wildlife Conservation Society and Director of the Manhattan Project and a major advisor on the Waterfront Project. He will be there. Kate Orff, who is a MacArthur Award-winning landscape architect whose firm Scape has designed a visionary plan for Gowanus Canal. Another participant is Andrea Parker, who is the executive director of the Gowanus Canal Conservancy. And this whole event is moderated by Jared Murphy of City Limits, who's actually been a really fantastic moderator for us before. So again, this is Wednesday, April 18th. Event is at 630. General admission is five. For those of you who are members, you get in for free and we'll link to this on the show notes. And the event that I'm looking forward to is one that celebrates a beverage that I don't drink. (laughs) I don't drink coffee, but I understand its importance to many people and our history in Brooklyn. And so on Thursday, April 26th at 6.30 p.m., we will have Roasted, the History of Coffee in New York City. 
And this will feature our wonderful, brilliant co-host. And I'm serious, y'all. She is wonderful and she is brilliant. <laughs> Historian Julie Golia, who was the curator of the Waterfront exhibition, along with Coffee Impresario and owner of Gillies Coffee Company, which was founded in 1840, Donald Shenholt, Brooklyn Roasting Company's Jim Munson, and Aaron Meester, author of New York City Coffee, A Caffeinated History. Again, this is Thursday, April 26th. Doors open at 6. The event is at 6.30 p.m. The general admission is $5, but free for members. Hopefully, all our listeners are members by now for all of the access to the programs that we endorse every month. So come check it out. And with this episode of Flatbush in Maine, we've made Brooklyn history. You can learn more about Flatbush in Maine at brooklynhistory.org slash flatbush dash Maine. There you'll find more details from each episode, pictures of documents and artifacts, and clips and info on oral histories. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and rate us on Apple Podcasts or any other podcast platform you use. Our show music is by Joe Schloss. Find out more about him at josephschloss.com. Tune in each month for lots more Brooklyn history. From Brooklyn Historical Society, we are your hosts, Zahir Ali and Julie Golia.